So next week we'll be coming to Blessed are the Peacemakers. They will be called the Sons of God. And I told you that uh, that has to do with the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling people back to God and back to one another. And we have a very special guest who's going to be here with us next weekend. His name is John Perkins. He has spent his life involved in the ministry of reconciliation, helping people being reconciled back to God, back to one another. He has a phenomenal story of growing up in Mississippi. His brother went away to fight in World War II, survived Hitler, came back only to be assassinated and murdered by a white supremacist in Mississippi. He left Mississippi, moved to Southern California, where he found Jesus Christ and began his relationship, moved back to Mississippi, and he has spent his entire life traveling the United States, traveling the world, helping people be reconciled back to God, reconciled to one another. I love what it says in Colossians 3, there were, there were the Scythians, the barbarians, the free, the slaves, the Jews, the Greek, the men, the women, it didn't matter. They were all together worshiping because of the gospel, the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. You're going to want to be here next weekend. You're going to bring somebody with you. I think it's going to be one of the highlights of Hope Community Church uh, this year. By the way, is it just me or is it a little hot in here today? Uh, 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 oh, 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 didn't even realize I had that on. Wow, I'm sorry. Whew. <laughs> hey, <laughs> let's pray. Uh, no. If you've ever tried to break a habit or change some area of your life where you were told, or even you thought you needed to change, you know how tough it is, right? I mean, how many of us have walked out of church after hearing a message about being more merciful, thinking, I'm going to be more merciful, right? Or I'm going to be more meek. Or maybe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a better spouse. I'm going to be a better husband. We learned about that in our modern family series. Or I need to be more forgiving. Or I need to have more patience. Only to look back on your life after a few months and see absolutely nothing has changed. It's because it's really hard to change your life. Or, or maybe you walked out of the doctor's office. And as you're walking to your car, getting your keys out of your pocket, you thought, man, I have got to get in shape. You know, you just had your physical. I've got to lose some weight. I've got to lower my cholesterol. Only to look back six months to a year, absolutely nothing has changed. It's really, really hard to change our lives, to become something that we're not, to go through that process. And I was reminded of that a few months ago. I was hanging out at the coffee shop between services on a Sunday morning. And a lady came up to me. She says, Pastor Mike, I love you. But, see, there's always a but. I love you, but what we could really use around here is a kinder, gentler pastor. I mean, if you could just get nicer and you could be more loving and maybe a little bit more cheer blossoms, you know, if that, that's really what we need around here. And I thought, you know what? She's probably right. I, I, I probably should be a kinder, gentler pastor. And I thought I can do this, right? And so I laid out a plan. I started watching more chick flicks with Laura, you know, and we started going to musicals and uh, I decided I wasn't going to pick on Carolina fans anymore and I wasn't going to be sarcastic. Uh, I even allowed myself to shed a tear or two when Laura was watching The Bachelor. I thought, I can do this. I can be a kinder, gentler pastor. But you know, I look back after a year or so of trying to do that and I realize I'm still the same crusty old pastor I've been for 30 years. Nothing's really changed. It's hard to change. There was another time Laura and I, were, we were having a kind of a romantic dinner and, and uh, we were out of town and, and we were evaluating our relationship, talking about ways that our marriage could be better and even stronger. And basically it was, it was things I needed to change. It was really kind of what the conversation was. And, uh, and uh, she was right on every one of those. And one of them was, honey, I, you know what would be nice if you were a little bit more sophisticated? If you could just be a little bit more sophisticated when we're out in public, when we're at a nice restaurant. And uh, I thought, well, I can do this. 
I mean, if this is what my lovely bride of 34 years wants, I can be more sophisticated. And so I, you know, I went and started getting per, uh, uh, pedicures. You know, I, was, I thought that's what sophisticated people do. And I went to the mall and I got me a bathrobe and a pair of slippers. I mean, I look so sophisticated sitting in my house, right? When I'm doing those kinds of things. And uh, I decided I wasn't gonna blow my nose anymore without tissues. Some of you men know what I'm talking about. I'm not gonna clean my ears anymore with my keys. I mean, I am going to be sophisticated. I'm gonna tell you, sitting up here this week and I am exactly the same old crusty husband I have always been. And the reality is it's just really hard to change. It's really hard to change. I was incredibly reminded of that as I prepared for this weekend's message. Now, let me just tell you something. Uh, when I began this message a few weeks ago, this was going in a totally different direction. But I mean, I don't, when I say God spoke to me, he didn't speak to me audibly, but God spoke to my heart and he says, Mike, I want you to kind of go in a different direction. And I tell you that because if you don't like the message this weekend, don't blame me, blame God, okay? Now, if you're new, we're in a series, we're calling it The Great Paradox, Finding Happiness in the Strangest Places. And where we're finding happiness is in the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5. And we're basing it on the idea that the word blessed is the word makarios in the Greek, which is the base of the root. The root of the word is joy. It means how do you find real happiness? Not happiness based on your circumstances. Not happiness, I have enough money, I've married a great spouse, I've got a great job. Not that kind of happiness. Those are external circumstances. But how can you be internally happy? And what we're learning in this series is Jesus says, if you want to be happy, it's going to take some life transformation. Well, we've come to our sixth beatitude. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And Jesus says, blessed or happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, let me just say this. Before you run out of here today and decide, I am going to be pure in heart, let me give you a biblical definition of this phrase, pure in heart. This is what it means. It means free from impurities, completely blameless, completely innocent, completely perfect. And I, I hear that and I think, how in the world can I ever do that? How in the world can I ever be pure in heart? And, because here's the tension. If I can't change so that I can be kinder and gentler as a pastor, if I can't change so that I can be a more sophisticated husband for my spouse, how in the world can I ever get to the place where I can actually be pure in heart, completely blameless, completely innocent, completely perfect? This is my very next thought. That would take a miracle. That would take a miracle. I'm talking a miracle of Old Testament proportions. It would take a miracle. And as we're gonna see over the next few minutes, therein lies the answer. It really does take a miracle. It takes an act of God for us to be able to be pure in heart. By the way, one of the things I really love about our church is that you can attend here and I think you can be comfortable regardless of where you are on your spiritual journey. Our mission statement here at Hope is very simple. It's love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. We're gonna love you where you are. We don't want you to stay where you are. We want you to become all that Jesus Christ created you to be. So we wanna love you where you are. We wanna encourage you to grow in that relationship. And I say that because I know there are a lot of you here every weekend and I talk to you. We have a great conversation. Uh, you don't believe most of what I say, right? You don't believe the Bible is really the truly inspired word of God. You're just not there yet. You're not there yet. You don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth. You don't believe that there was some guy named Noah who built a boat and filled it up full of animals and basically saved the world. You don't believe that. You're not there yet. You don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. I mean, you don't even believe there really is a God. Let me just say that if, that's, if, that's, if that sounds like you this weekend, we absolutely love having you here. We love having you here, and we hope you will always continue to come because we kind of have a saying, maybe if you hang around the pond long enough, you'll fall in. 
Maybe you're here enough and God will do enough in your life where you realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is worth committing your life to. He's worth following. So we're so glad you're here. And then there are a lot of you here and you grew up in church. And, but for some reason, you kind of got bummed off, bummed toward the church, turned off. And you kind of disenfranchised from the church. You went away. Maybe it was in college. It happens a lot in college. You know, I don't believe in organized religion. You go through that whole process. But now all of a sudden you're back. You don't even know why you're back. Maybe it's because you got married and you thought, wow, this isn't anywhere near as easy as I thought it would be. Maybe, maybe church can help us. Or you had kids, right? And now you're trying to raise those little demon spawn and you're thinking, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe the church can help me with this, right? But you're here. You're not maybe bought all the way back in yet, but you're listening, you're processing. And I just want you to know we are so glad you're here. But then there's one other group that's represented here every weekend. We also love having you here. And I think it's a bigger group than we think. It's those of you who are very, very religious, very, very good. You believe that you have a relationship with God, but the reality is you don't. Now, let me just say this. I don't say that to condemn you. And I, I certainly don't say it to judge you. I don't say it because I think somehow I'm better than you. I mean, I probably have one of the lowest self-esteems in the world. I don't think I'm better than anybody, right? So I don't think I'm better and I don't think I'm judging you, but this is, this is the issue. Even though, even though you believe in God, even though you've been to church your whole life, even though you're doing everything you can do to be the best you can possibly be, I think when it's all said and done at the end of the day, you don't have a relationship with God. You haven't been reconciled back to God. Now you say, Mike, what in the world does this have to do with Matthew chapter five, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Well, th th this is where God changed my message this weekend. You can only be pure in heart when you are reconciled back to God through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You can only be pure in heart when you get to the place in your life where you, where you accept that what Jesus did on the cross to pay for your, you, you accept that free gift of salvation so that you can be forgiven or to go old school a little bit retro to use a term we don't use anymore. You can be born again. So you can be born again. Now let's talk, I mean, that's serious. Born a second time, that, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. But understand when it happens, God sees you the very same way that he sees his son, Jesus Christ. Did you know that? That's why Paul could say with such confidence in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore is there, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what he was saying? When I see you and you're in Christ Jesus, I see you free from impurities, completely blameless, innocent, and perfect. He says, I see you pure in heart, no condemnation. Let me show you what I'm talking about. John chapter 3, if you have your Bibles. Uh, John is, uh, Jesus got into this interesting conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. It says this, there was a man of the Pharisee, so we know as a Pharisee, uh, named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council, so he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the 70 men who made up the, the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't even get a glimpse of the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. And let's be honest, that's a pretty good question. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water. That's not a reference to baptism. That's a, that's a reference to physical birth. Unless he's born of water and the spirit. Notice what Jesus says now. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's referring back to the water birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. 
And then he says this, Nicodemus, you should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again. Now, I guarantee you there's a lot of people here right now, and you've heard this term born again, and you kind of thought it was made up by some really right-wing religious fanatics, right, who came up with this born again. I mean, you haven't heard this since the 60s or the 70s. That's not the case. This is a term that Jesus came up with. And Jesus doesn't say, Nicodemus, you should be born again. He said, hey, Nicodemus, this shouldn't even shock you. You must be born again. In fact, if you're not born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. If you're not born again, you will never have a relationship with God. You will never be a part of his kingdom. You've got to be born again. Now, this is what I know about everybody here this weekend. Everybody sitting here, one thing we all have in common, we each experienced a physical birth. Not a one of us here this weekend was hatched. Not one of us. Not one person here started life as an amoeba, climbed out of some pond scum, stood up on two legs, and went to Carolina. You could build a case for that. You could, but it's not the way it works. Every one of us, as Jesus said, flesh of flesh, we, every one of us has a physical birth. We experience that. We have it in common. But according to what Jesus is saying here, if you want to have a relationship with God, it's not just enough to be physically born. And I point that out because I want you to understand no one is born a Christian. I hear people saying, well, I'm a Christian. My grandfather started a church. My grandfather was a missionary to Africa. Of course I'm a Christian. Or I think lots of times we think we're Christians because we're born in America. I mean, we're in the greatest country on the earth. We have in God we trust on our money. We even say one nation under God in our pledge. And I think we can fall into this false sense of security that I'm an American, I'm a Christian. Uh Uh-uh. It's not enough to be born physically. Jesus says, you've got to be born of the Spirit. You've got to be born a second time. By the way, let me just give you a little background about Nicodemus. We saw, first of all, he was a Pharisee. And I know that they get a bad rap in our day, and they should. Most of them were ruthless in the days of Jesus. But they were also the most conservative theologians of their day. For example, not only did they read the Bible, they studied the Bible. Not only did they study the Bible, they memorized the Bible. In fact, if you wanted to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. And I know, I know that doesn't impress a lot of you because you did that when you were four. That doesn't impress you, right? But if you were going to be a, a Pharisee, here was the standard. You had to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now let me just ask you, how much of the Bible do you have memorized? Some of you say, I have, I have none of it memorized, so I'm going to help you, okay? I want to make sure you can leave here this weekend with one verse you've memorized, okay? John eleven thirty five. 35, repeat after me. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. That's it. That's not two words. Now you know at least one verse. So you can't say you don't have any of the Bible memorized. Jesus wept. Some of us maybe know 10 verses. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Oh, we know that verse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A lot of us know that verse. Maybe you know 100 verses. Maybe you even know 200 verses. But to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you would have to memorize 5,901 verses. That was the standard for the Pharisees. And not only did they memorize it, they taught that you should live by it. But that's not all. On top of that, they fasted. They prayed. They attended church every week. They gave 10% of their income back to the church. That was the standard for the Pharisee. 
And according to what Jesus says, uh, the, the conversation here in verse 2, Nicodemus also believed in God and he believed in Jesus. Look what it says in verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one, no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So first of all, we believe in God. We think that you probably are the Messiah who came from God. So, Jesus, so Nicodemus went to church every week. He prayed, gave 10% of his income back to the church. He memorized the Bible. On top of that, he believed in God. On top of that, he believed in Jesus. And this is what Jesus said to him. I don't care what you've done. I'm not impressed by how much of the Bible you've memorized. I don't even care what you believe. You will never have a relationship with God. You will never, ever in your lifetime see God unless, unless you're born again. Wow. Now, I didn't say that. Jesus said it, okay? So direct your emails to him, okay? Now, this brings up the question. And just be honest with yourself. What are you basing your relationship with God on? What are you basing your eternity with God on? And be honest. Are you basing it on your church attendance? Are, are you basing it on all your efforts and all your attempts to be a good moral person are you basing it on the fact that you come to church every week maybe you pray maybe you serve maybe you give a little bit of money every once in a while Jesus comes along and tells Nicodemus you better base it on you better base it on your willingness to be born again now I was a PE major I'm not the brightest bulb in the box let me ask you this if our relationship with God and our eternity with God, according to Jesus, is based on a born-again experience. It just seems to me that this is, this is one area of life where we can't afford to be confused. It just seems to me that this is, this is the one thing in life, if we get nothing else right, because we're just here for a short while, we got a whole eternity to be somewhere, right? It just seems to me that this is the one thing we need to make sure we get right but this is this is just my thought I have a feeling that a lot of people who attend Hope Community Church on a regular basis week in and week out have never been born again now it doesn't make you bad it doesn't make anybody better than you it does make you maybe confused and I'm going to base that on something else Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 if you have your Bible flip over there this is also remember the Sermon on the Mount uh, Jesus, uh, as I said, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, they're like the introduction. Jesus is setting up the entire Sermon on the Mount. And then he continues in chapter 5, chapter 6, to, in the chapter 7. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. He's speaking. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, many, keep that word in mind, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Now, according to, to what Jesus is teaching here, he says many people, many people are on the road that leads to destruction, that broad road. In comparison, there's only a few people who are on the narrow road that's heading for life. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. Do you think when Jesus says, the, the, talking about the road that leads to destruction, do you think he was referring to heaven or hell? Well, I'd say destruction, hell, okay. 
And then when he uses the term, the road that leads to real life, do you think he's referring to heaven or hell? I think, I think he's referring to heaven, this relationship with God that ultimately we get to spend eternity with him. So if God says that, that a lot of people, many, that's his term, many, Jesus said, are going to go to hell. I know this is old school, right? But only a, a small group of people in comparison are going to make it to heaven. Does that not get your attention? You know what it's like? I got a couple of pictures here. This is the freeway going into Miami. And I thought, if you've ever been to Miami in the summer, it, it feels like hell. So how appropriate is this? <laughs> if Jesus had a, a pictures, I think he would say, this is what it looks like on the way to hell. Let me show you the next picture. This is more what it looks like on the way to heaven. By the way, that's the two-lane road leading into Fuquay. Whoever thought I would consider Fuquay heaven, right? But you, you get the point. You get the point, right? Now, here's the question. Why is Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount saying so many people are going to wind up in hell, but so few people are going to actually make it to heaven? I'm going to tell you why. It's, I'm going to show you the verse. And I never really saw that this week. It's because so few people are really born again. And what I mean by that, there's so few people who are willing to give God not only the ownership, but the control of their lives. And again, I'm not, I, I, I'm not, I, I hope you understand I'm not judging you. I, I, I hope you see me as the best friend you've ever had, right? I hope you see that, right? Because my fear is even though you believe in God, Nicodemus believed in God. Even though you believe in Jesus, Nicodemus believed in Jesus. Here's the difference. You want to run your life. You want to call the shots. You want to have just enough Jesus to feel better about yourself. And hopefully there's some good principles and teaching that might make your life a little better. But when it's all said and done at the end of the day, you still want to do your own thing. Now here's the problem. According to Jesus, that's a problem. And that's a big problem. In fact, let me show you the verse. Verse 21, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But here's the key but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, only those who are willing to surrender their will, the control of their life back to God. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons, perform all kinds of miracles? Jesus said, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. So get this picture. People are going to be standing in front of Jesus at the judgment. They're going to say, wait a second, Jesus. We did this. We did this. We served. We worked in the parking lot. We gave some money. We, 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 we gave money so we could drill some wells in Africa to help build a church there. We did all these great things. We did all these incredible things in your name. And Jesus is going to say, man, I tell you, I don't recognize you. In other words, because you never surrendered the control of your life to me, we never had a relationship. Now, if you want to know what keeps me up at night, this is the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. Because one day I'm going to stand before God and you know what he's going to hold me accountable for? Not my salvation, that's taken care of. He's going to hold me accountable for what I did with my life as I served him. And this is the one question I often wonder about. If, if this church that is called Hope Community Church, is it what Jesus wanted it to be? And did we maximize the opportunities we have with the resources that God? These are the kind of things that keep me awake at night. But I'm thinking this. If according to Jesus, many people, many, that's his term, many people who are actually engaged in doing really good stuff for God, 
they're serving, they're giving, they're coming to church, they're maybe even helping the poor. If many of those people who are doing really good stuff for God aren't going to make it to heaven, then how many people of the thousands of people that show up at our three campuses every weekend, right? You come, you sit, you listen, you leave, but you're not doing anything for God. You're not serving, you're not giving, you don't really care about the poor. You're just kind of here, self-improvement program. Well, then how many of those aren't going to go to heaven? And if people who are here every week, there's many who aren't going to go to heaven, then how many who only come once a month aren't going to make it to heaven? And if the ones that come once a month aren't going to get in, how many, you know, the poinsettia lily crowd, they only come twice a year. How many of them actually aren't going to make it, right? Now I think you understand why Jesus says there's a lot of people on this broad road and that would include some of you. But do you understand why you're on the broad road? It's because you don't want to do the will of the Father. You want to do your will. You don't want to give up control of your life. And for that reason, many of you, many of you, I'm afraid, have never been, to use Jesus' term, born again. And that also explains, if I can just take it a step further, why your life has never really changed. Oh, you manage it better, but it's never really changed. I mean, think of it. For most of you, when you started showing up and attending church, you already had a sense of right and wrong. You already knew that you're not supposed to murder people. You didn't, you didn't need me to do a message on you shouldn't murder. You knew that. You already knew that you weren't supposed to have an affair and commit adultery. You didn't need to hear me teach on that. You knew deep down inside that that was wrong. You already knew you weren't supposed to steal from your neighbor. You, you, didn't, you didn't need to hear me talk about that. You know, when God created the garden, he told Adam to manage it. Deep down inside of you, there was already something that said you should probably take care of the environment, you know, because God gave it to us to manage. Deep down inside of you, you already knew that you were supposed to be a good employee with integrity, and you're supposed to be a good spouse, a good parent, a good child. Don't do drugs. You knew that already. Don't drink and drive. You knew these kinds of things. I mean, in other words, even as an unbeliever, you, you, you knew you were supposed to be good. You knew you were supposed to obey the rule. Now, here's the problem. This is where we get confused sometimes. Sometimes, somewhere along that road, you know, you concluded, if I will obey the rules, God will be oppressed, and that's what will change my life. So without even realizing what you were doing, you took off on your spiritual journey, assuming that everything in your relationship with God, it depends on how you perform, how you act. You were thinking, if I can just be good, if I can just obey all the rules, if I can just be the best person I can possibly be, me and God, we're going to be okay. But then you get to a series like the Beatitudes. And you realize it's, it's not just enough not to kill people or steal from people or have an affairs commit adultery that's not that's not enough anymore all of a sudden now God says hmm on top of that I want you to be poor in spirit I want you to get to the place where you realize you you are spiritually bankrupt you have nothing I want from you spiritually and on top of that I, I want you to mourn over your condition and then I want you to learn how to be meek I want you to learn how to turn the other cheek put others ahead of yourself on top of that I want you to learn how to be merciful to others I want you to learn how to do all these things. And now you're listening to this stuff and we're going through the Beatitudes and you hear also on top of that, God wants you to be pure in heart, free from impurities, completely blameless, innocent, perfect. And you think, 
okay God I'll try but don't get your hopes up so this is what happens we give it our best shot we fail our response is God I'll try a little harder next time you know maybe I wasn't really saved maybe that's why I haven't been getting you know, on top of this God so if I wasn't saved last time make sure I'm saved this time I want to be saved this time and then you try again and you fail again. Well, maybe I wasn't saved. Maybe, I didn't, maybe when I said the prayer, I didn't really mean it. Maybe when I walked down the aisle, I didn't really mean it. Maybe when my friend says, say these words, I didn't really mean it. Maybe I wasn't saved. I, so you're in this vicious cycle. But this is what I want you to understand. You cannot live out the Beatitudes. How's that for encouragement? You cannot live the Christian life. And as long as your attitude on your spiritual journey is this, God, thank you for the rules. Thank you for the guidelines. I've got it from here. You will always fail. You cannot live the Christian life. And it's because the Christian life is Christ's life. We can't imitate Christ. We can't even imitate Elvis. How are we going to imitate Jesus Christ, right? And it's not called the disciplined life. It's not called that, is it? It's called the Christian life. It's his life. And the only person who ever lived the Christian life successfully is Christ. This is why you keep failing. This is why no matter how hard you try, you keep lusting or you keep gossiping or you keep lying or you keep losing your temper or you keep going back to alcohol or you keep on smoking pot or you keep having sex outside of marriage. This is why you can't be merciful and no matter how hard you try, you can't be meek. Do you know why? There's a good chance you've never been born again. And I think when it's all said and done, that's what we're learning in this series. Remember how many times have I said, it's not about doing, it's about being. It's not about doing the Christian life. It's about being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But you're never going to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're never going to be born again as long as you want to control your life. You're never going to see God. You're never even going to get a good glimpse of his kingdom. And I think a lot of you need to hear that. And I hope this is encouraging to you because many of you, you're killing yourself trying to live the Christian life. What you really need to do is get to the point where you're willing to surrender, give up, and allow Jesus Christ to live his life through you. Because at the end of the day, I know it's an old term, but that's what it means to be born again. It's when you get to the point and say, God, I have just tried. And I've come to the conclusion and the realization I can't do it. So my only other option is to give up control of my life and let you do it through me. And let me just tell you, when you get there, your life will finally begin to change. In fact, it will, you will experience a radical change. You may not be perfect, but your passion for obedience, your passion to read the word of God and discover its principles and truths and say, I, 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 that's not, that's not, that doesn't square up with my life. I got to change my life to what God wants me to be instead of, nah, don't like that. Nah, take that under advisement. You know, whole different approach to life. Uh, Gary Vett, everybody welcome Gary Vett. Gary is our, <laughs> Gary's our director of spiritual formation here, uh, here at Hope and uh, we're workout buddies and uh, we got a serious bromance going on and uh, we work out at the gym every day. And uh, we take a lot of ridicule for that. But he's like my Jonathan. He's my guy that holds my feet to the fire, makes sure I'm a good husband, a decent pastor. He's my accountability buddy. And uh, you got a great story of how God transformed your life. And, you're, and you, you are meek. You're one of the meekest guys I've ever met in my life and one of the kindest people I've ever met. But people may be shocked to know that that wasn't always your life. What was it like before you were born again? Thanks, Mike. Um, I grew up in a, in a church-going home, and uh, 
basically saw God as an insurance agent offering fire insurance. Uh, I was told, you know, growing up in church that if you didn't accept Jesus, you go to hell. So every time I'd do what I wanted to do, uh, I'd go home at night, like perhaps many of you, and I'd confess my sins and ask God to save me again. And as you were talking about, that was the repetition for a long time. And uh, after time, I, I really started following the footsteps of my brother, uh, a little older than I, um, and uh, he, he, was, uh, he rode with the Hells Angels, he was a street fighter, he was really into the party scene and all that, and as a young, young kid, I, I got involved in uh, drinking early, and by the age uh, 12, I was uh, buying and selling and using drugs, and by 14, um, we were stealing cars and fencing the parts to make some money to support our habits, and, and then, um, we would get involved as, as well in, as in insurance fraud, uh, taking people's keys from them and torching their cars and, and then collecting, they'd collect the insurance money, we'd get some money uh, from them. And that's, that was my life. And during that whole time, I was in church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night prayer meeting. Uh, I could, uh, I did memorize Bible verses and I could win Bible quizzes and all that. But God was still just that insurance agent. I could just still turn to him and, and hey, you know, sorry. Uh, oops, I did it again, right? That's kind of the way I approached God. To quote Brittany. Right. <laughs> She's a great theologian. So anyway, um, so that was my life. And one day I got honest with God. November 30th, 1979. I remember the date very specifically, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But on that night, I raised my fist toward heaven, told God, I'm going to fight you. That was not a smart thing to do, but I'm glad I did it. 200 miles south of Cleveland, where we grew up, my brother, the night I was raising my fist to heaven and telling God I wanted to fight you, he was bowing his knees and surrendering his life and his will to Jesus Christ. Two days later, he was home, and uh, he got kicked out of the school he was at because he beat up the Ohio State Buckeyes quarterback. Um, you can't hardly blame a guy for yeah, that. Yeah, right. I had somebody from Michigan last night say, yes. So anyway, uh, so he got kicked out of the, the university he was going to, and uh, he came back home to live with us for a little bit. And here's this, this huge, muscular, uh, street-fighting, hell's angel, who's telling me he loves me and he's praying for me. And I hated him because I knew he was right about what he was doing. But it just drove me farther and farther away from him and, and from the Lord and, and anything religious. And, and uh, my life just spiraled downward until I was drinking excessively every day to the point where my, I just shuffled around and, and uh, my speech was slurred. And, and uh, one night, I went out partying, and I came home, and it was about 2 a.m. I laid down in bed, and I remember thinking this thought. I'm either going to die, or I'm going to end up in a gutter. And at that moment, the overwhelming grace and mercy of God just arrested my heart. And I realized I had been treating God as an insurance agent, not as Lord and as King. And so that night I just dropped onto my knees 
and I surrendered my will to his. Ran upstairs, woke my brother up, and told him what I had done, and he rejoiced. And, you know, we were, we were very excited about that, and I couldn't wait to tell my parents in the morning because I had devastated them. And uh, from that time forward, I, would, I wish I could say life's been great. Um, God's been great. And my heart has been changed because of him, not something that I've done. But God's done a work in my heart. He's changed my desires. Uh, he's made me filled with joy and, and gratitude for all that he's done for me. Um, but by no means perfect, still trying to work out the truth. Gary, I appreciate you sharing your story. And a lot of you probably have a similar story. And here's a danger. You know what a lot of you are thinking? Wow, man, that's awesome how God changed his life. I'm glad I'm not like that. This is what's so deceiving. Without being born again, God sees you no differently than he saw Gary. And you've actually maybe fallen into the trap that I'm okay because I never did anything like that. Let me tell you something. You can't change your heart and you can't change your life, but God can. And what I want you to walk out of here understanding this weekend is when God changes your heart, you will be pure in heart. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And according to Jesus, when you're pure in heart, you will see God. You will be a part of his kingdom. And when you see God, you're going to be happy. Maybe for the first time in your life. But for that to happen, you've got to stop going your own way and decide, God, it's time to do it your way. It's time to do it your way. I'm going to ask you to bow as we wrap this up. I'm just going to ask you right out, what are you, what are you basing your relationship with God on? What are you basing eternity with God on? And I'm just going to go out on a limb here. And I'm, I'm not going to say like Gary, you have to remember the date. But if you can't remember a time in your life when you realized that you were spiritually bankrupt before God and your only hope was what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and you surrendered your life to him, even as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but Father, your will be done in my life. It's very, very possible that you've never been born again. And I always think, what a shame it would be to be so close. So close. And yet miss it. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, if you would like to pray it. And there's nothing special, there's nothing magical about this prayer. But if this is a prayer that that comes from your heart and God knows your heart man looks at the outward appearance God looks at the heart this is what God needs to hear from you if you would just like to say this and pray this to yourself to God dear God I believe that Jesus is your son and I believe that when he died he died for me I believe that he was buried I believe that he rose after three days I believe that he is the savior of the world and I receive him right now as my savior. I'm surrendering my life to you. Please accept me into your family right now. Not based on my efforts. Not even based on this prayer. But, my, but based on my faith in what you did on my behalf. Thank you for forgiving me. 
and thank you for accepting me. Father, I don't know who's praying that prayer right now. But I know if they pray it in faith, believing that you hear them. And I know that at that moment, they are, to use Jesus' term, born again. I know that right now, there is no condemnation that you see in their life. You see them pure, spotless, perfect, as you see your very son, Jesus Christ. And they have been reconciled back to you, and they now have a relationship with you, and their eternity in heaven with you is secured, and nothing can take that away. Father, help us to understand that when we come into a relationship with you, doesn't mean all our problems are solved. It doesn't mean that life's going to be good from here on out. It means that you've taken us on as a project, and your project is to conform us to the very image of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the promise in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who begins a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. So, Father, I would just pray that you would complete the work that you have begun in all of our lives, regardless of how long we've been in a relationship, whether it's just been a minute or two or whether it's been a decade or two. May we be surrendered to your plan in our lives. And, God, we give you the glory, and we thank you, thank you for what you're doing, and that you loved us so much. In your name we pray.